Welcome to the messages of Cornerstone Anglican Church. God sent his son so that we just might get it. In this episode from the archives, Pastor Andrew delivers a theological masterclass into the understanding of the Trinity. We're picking up the theme of Trinity Sunday and wanting to bring out something important that really affects our lives as Christians. Last week we looked at the name of the Trinity. There is one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And their name's important, and because their name's important, so is yours. If who they are in being is important, then so is yours and mine. And I want to get that through picking up some of the terminology that the church has used over hundreds of years in regards to the Trinity, and to pull out of that something I find exciting and really goes to the heart of the meaning, our meaning of being Christians. So I'm going to start with the Trinitarian formula and pick up the whole concept of what the bishops and that were trying to do in the councils and the creeds that we have. Early in the piece, there were some real arguments about the nature of God, the nature of the Christian God, and the place of Jesus and the Holy Spirit within the Godhead. Many would want to claim, yes, Father God is God, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit aren't themselves divine. And that was one of the issues during the councils, and clearly came out that there is, in fact, a trinity. Within that trinity of one God, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they all are God, and they work in unity together. Now, the fathers of the church worked with a couple of Greek words. One was ousia, and the other one was hypostasis. And effectively, ousia meant being or substantive reality, whereas hypostasis looked at the essence of things. And so what we find in the formula, there is one ousia, there's one God, and within that one God there are three hypostasis, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And those two things are distinctly different, even though their meaning are actually very close. And for some hundreds of years, the church had to tease out just what is the heart of the meaning of who is our God. For instance, Basil of Caesarea wanted to pick up what was the difference between these two words and basically says the distinction between ousia and hypostasis is the same as between the general and the particular. As, for instance, between the animal and the particular man. Wherefore, in the case of the Godhead, we confess one essence or substance so as not to give variant definitions of existence but we confess a particular hypostasis 
in order that our conception of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit be without confusion and clear. So what are these guys trying to do? They wanted to get an idea that the sense of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are indeed three persons, three personas within the Godhead. They are trying to see how the oneness and the threeness mix together, and that's when it can get really confusing. So the Trinity claims that within the one God, there are three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are actually distinct persons. They're not different masks that God puts on. Some try to explain the understanding of the Trinity by using that sort of terminology, that the Father has one mask, then the Son is a different mask, and the Holy Spirit is a different mask. That just seems to be one person putting on different faces. And that is certainly not what the Trinity is about. That they are three distinct persons within one unity. If we just have a look at a Nicene Creed for a minute and understand that what the councils and the creeds were trying to do is give us a true understanding of the divine nature of the living God who had been revealed through Jesus Christ. So we just start the Nicene Creed by saying, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all this seen and unseen. Okay, so we put the Father there at the prominent place. Then we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And so the creed really declares up front that the Son of God is divine in nature and is divine equally with the Father. And again, the Son of God was involved in the creation of the world and the universe. And lo and behold, they also know that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary became man. So where you find one of them acting, you actually find all three acting. And then down we go, and there's the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. It proceeds in the Father and the Son, with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified. So the Nicene Creed brought us together on this idea that here we have an incredible God who's a personal God. He's not some principle or some impersonal God, but he is a personal God for whom we ourselves receive our personality. Now, over history, and we're talking about history for some couple of thousand years, the church has tried to work through what is the meaning of the oneness and what is the meaning of the threeness. And the Western church has basically focused on the one God and the three persons are an afterthought. And the difficulty with that is that that can produce quite an impersonal nature or concept of God. And it can also, in a sense, say God is out there, but he's not here. And that certainly is not the nature of the Trinitarian God. If we're following from what we know as Yahweh, who is God in the midst of us, then the Trinity also has to be clearly God in the midst of us. Otherwise, the incarnation of the Son of God in Jesus Christ makes no sense at all. God sent his Son so we just might get it. 
We weren't getting it real well. Even his people were not getting it real well. And so the son come to help us sort through who God is, what's he one of us, does he care, and is he relevant? And you'll know in our society we consider the Bible and God and church quite irrelevant. And yet the Trinitarian God lies at the heart of the reality of the world we live in and the universe within which our tiny planet exists. And he's an awesome God. Now, if we start, as I said, with God's oneness, we get caught because we don't quite get a hold of what it is that makes God one. Is God three gods contained in a sort of get-together? No, we want to clear there's, there's only one God. And he is there. But within that Godhead, there is a diversity of persons called the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If we listen to some of the ecumenical people, they keep using the word called koinonoa, which means communion and fellowship. And it does mean that. But in the New Testament, it's only ever used 90% of the time to refer to our relationship between us and God or God and God, the persons themselves. It only ever uses that word to relate to our relationships, our communion as Christians in our church or between churches. It only uses it once in 1 John. And there in 1 John, John is saying, hey guys, we have such an awesome God and we want to have fellowship with you, but you need to have fellowship with him first. And if we get that, then we begin to understand something of what the three persons are about. They are persons in unity. They are persons in communion. They are persons in fellowship. And they have eternally been that way. They've never been at odds with one another. They've never been put out by each other. They have maintained an incredible sense of communion, fellowship, and unity for eternity. And if we pick up the three persons and that relationship, we can begin to see why they are one God. It is that unity, that communion, and that fellowship that holds them together. And the only point, from my point of view, when that was threatened was on the cross where Jesus cried, Father, why have you deserted me? Now, there are a number of opinions on what that means, but I feel that at that point, as the sins of the world, our rebellion, our arrogance, our mistakes, our ailments, our imperfections, were put on the Son of God there on the cross, and he felt what we feel. He felt that separation from the Father. I don't know whether it was a real separation, but he sensed what you and I know, that we feel separated from God, that we don't always feel like he's there for us. And sometimes we're not sure we're there for him. And Jesus felt that. And he came to deal with that. He came to deal with the thing that separates you and separates me from God. 
And yes, there are demonic hordes and they are a problem. But at the heart of it is our rebellion, our wanting to do it my way, our wanting to be my way. That's the breach. Sins, and there are sins, and they've got various types of sins, and some are harsher than others. But at the heart of it is our trying to be independent from God that lies at the heart of the problem that we have. It lies at the heart of the separation. If we're trying to be independent from God and run it our ways, well, we're not with him. And we have that part of us that just wants to do it our way. And part of the relationship we are called to is to come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Now, why do we do that? Or how can we do that? What does that achieve? We do it because that's what Jesus did on the cross for you and me. That's what the scriptures keep proclaiming to us. He took our sin. He took our rebellion. He brought us back to God. He revealed to us the love of God. He revealed to us the call from God not to be obedient out of fear, not to be obedient so we can get to heaven, but to be obedient because of the love that he pours out to us and we respond back to him. The love that Jesus showed, the ways in which Jesus showed it in going to the cross for us. Now, let's go back to the internal nature of the Godhead for a minute. Because Jesus did more than simply get us into heaven. He did more than simply get us into the presence of the Father, clean and whole and righteous. He did more than restore our life. He did more than wash us clean from sin. Because what God did through Jesus Christ was to bring us into his fellowship. In that eternal unity, communion and fellowship that they had with one another, God invites you and I into their fellowship, into their communion. And the whole use of the word koinonoa in the Greek for fellowship, communion, relates to our having that fellowship and communion with God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. So it's more than just being adopted into a family. God could do that and say, look, I've made heaven for you. You'll have a good life. We'll touch base as we go. No. He went beyond that. He brought us into himself. And into Peter. Peter talks about us actually experiencing the divine nature that in that relationship we have through God, through Jesus Christ, we partake of the divine nature. Think about it. Every time you come to communion, you receive the body and blood of Jesus. Whether you believe that that's in the elements themselves or whether you believe that's anything that we do by faith, whatever way we're doing it, we are partaking of the divine life that comes to us through Jesus. That he is the Lord, he is our Lord, and he gives us life, 
divine life. He transforms us because as we partake of the communion and the unity and the fellowship of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we partake of their nature. doesn't mean we are God. What we are is the people of God in unity with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. The people of God in communion with our God. The people of God who know that incredible sense and confidence that we have when Jesus Christ comes into our life and we are born again with the Spirit and we are baptised in the Spirit, that we have that relationship with God. And it's an intimate relationship. It's a unified relationship. It's a communal relationship. It's not a matter of obeying rules because he's brought us further than that. He hasn't simply said, look, you keep these rules now and you'll be okay. He said, no, no, I want to have a personal relationship with you. You know, that famous picture of Jesus knocking at our door. And why? Because he wants to come in and have supper with us. And when you understand the Jewish meaning of that, to be invited to supper is one of the most fellowship-orientated invitations you can receive from a Jewish person. Come and have dinner with us. What's Jesus saying? I want that level of relationship with you. I want that depth of relationship with you. And I want you to know the depth of the love, unity, holiness and joy of God that has been offered to you through Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. Not just a matter of eternal life. It's the level of life, the depth of life, the togetherness of life that has been offered to you and me through Jesus Christ. He lays out the invitation and we simply have to accept. Invite Jesus Christ into your life. Confess to him your rebellion, your arrogance, your sinfulness. Ask for the forgiveness of the Father and allow that cleansing, healing power of Jesus to flood through your being, that you might be brought into that fellowship and enjoy God forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. And we're sorry for wanting to make you someone different than you are. And this night we accept, or this day we accept your offer to us your invitation into your unity, into your communion, into your fellowship. Raise us up through what Jesus has done so that we may enjoy that relationship with you forever. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to hear more great messages, check out our Facebook page or look us up on the net at cornerstone-church.com.au.